We continue our series in 1 Corinthians. Now we're um, in the middle of chapter 3. Do take a copy of God's Word and follow along. Page 953 in the Bible provided for you. We'll read verses 9 through 17. Uh, Verse 9 is how we ended last time, and uh, it has a a connecting function between Paul's two thoughts, so that's why we looked at it last time, but we're also uh, starting with it this time as well. So 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Thus far, the reading of God's word. On June 24th, 2021, at approximately 1.22 a.m., Champlain Towers South, a 12-story beachfront uh, condo in uh, the Miami suburb of Surfside, uh, Florida, collapsed. It caused the deaths of uh, 98 people who were uh, sleeping inside. And the uh, reason for the collapse is simply that the building was not up to code. Uh, The issues had been noted They had been addressed in some fashion. There was a plan in place, funds approved to make uh, the uh, fixes that were necessary. Uh, But uh, the fixes, the maintenance, didn't happen soon enough. The needed repairs never came. And as a nation, I'm sure you remember when that happened just a few years ago, uh, we were reminded that something that seems sort of dry and dull and boring, referring to building codes, is actually extremely important and is even a matter of life and death, really. The verses that we've read provide us insight into God's building code, God's plan uh, for his building, the church. Uh, It's his plan for the spiritual house of his people. We call that the church. And what might seem dry or dull at first reading, comes to extreme significance in our minds when we recognize that this is also a matter of life or death, recognizing how the church works and our 
place in it and our part in it. Indeed, being placed in it and being part of it is a matter of life or death. Uh, So we turn to this text to learn four lessons about the church, uh, her building code, divine blueprints. Uh, Paul has moved on from his agricultural uh, analogy that was in uh, verses 5 through 9. We talked about the church as a field, and uh, Paul planted, and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And now he's moving into a different image, imagery, different metaphor, different analogy. He's moved from agricultural analogies to architectural ones, uh, where we talk about the church not as a field, but as he ends verse 9, he says, God's building. In verse 10, look there, Paul refers to himself as a skilled master builder, which in Greek, master builder is uh, the word architecton. So I think you can hear our English word there for architect, architecton, the master builder. Uh, But before we move into what it means for Paul to be employed in and engaged in this work of um, God's church, or what it means even for us to be engaged in similar work, we go back to verse 9, and I just want us to start with this foundational point The building is God's. That's the first of the four things we're learning about divine building code. The first thing we need to know is whose building it is. The building is God's. You are God's building. The church belongs to God. He has his name on it. Think of how many of the uh, the significant, important buildings or structures in our country have someone's name attached to them. There's the Chrysler building in New York City uh, that was constructed by Walter Chrysler, the Chrysler Corporation in Chicago. The Sears Tower, um, now the Willis Tower, represent the different uh, patrons, different uh, sponsors, the different people that were financially backing that, that tower. Or you drive on 131 and you'll see LMCU Ballpark, which was uh, previously Fifth Third Ballpark, and um, the name says something about Uh, the person who puts the building up and who keeps it there. It is a statement of ownership. Okay, so if the church was um, an arena that you could drive by, like a ballpark, um, something that you could pass on the highway, what would the big sign say outside of that structure? Whose name would be on it? And the answer is God's name and only God's name, and that will never change. There's never going to be a transition of ownership. Uh, you know, Sears to Willis. It's, it's not going to happen. Uh, there will never be a better sponsorship that would uh, bring about a change in the advertising or the marketing for, for this structure. It's God's building. He has his name on it. And we are told that actually regarding the old covenant temple. The, the, the actual temple was said to have God's name on it. And Paul's going to say that the church is the temple in just a few verses, but look with me back to 1 Kings. So flip back a couple um, books of the Bible till you get to 1 Kings chapter 9. And uh, this is after Solomon has, has completed the building of the temple. The ark has been brought in. There's been um, some... Uh, Worship services happening, uh, Solomon leading the people and praising God and uh, praying a prayer of dedication. And chapter 9, this is 
what we read in terms of the Lord's response to what Solomon had done in terms of the temple. 1 Kings chapter 9, as soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. Verse 3, and the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. God put his name in the temple. His name being there meant his affections were there. His heart was there. And I wonder if we, Community Presbyterian Church in Kalamazoo, Michigan, if we as a church belong to God, then that's going to control a lot of what we do, isn't it? The answer is, of course, it's going to control uh, what we do. Uh, it has to. Um, it's going to dictate what vision we have for the church. Um, it's going to direct what uh, ministries we pour our time and our energies into. If it's his name on it, then we can be after nothing uh, that does not please him. Um, we can be after only that which honors him. If his name is on it, his word must be in it. And when we are in God's word, we know that we are after that which is pleasing to God. It, it's sad, right? Think how many churches are out there that have literally the name of God on them. You know, names like Trinity Church or, or uh, Christ Presbyterian, Christ the King Church, wh whatever it might be. And yet these churches, there's uh, sadly far too many of them. Uh, wherein each, word, each week God's word is manipulated or it's ignored in order to meet the demands of, sinful, of the sinful creature. That should disturb us. You know, uh, we don't get to, to um, dictate what goes on in, in our own congregation uh, in terms of, of ministry and message. God does that. We can't say, well, my house, my rules. No, it's not your house. It's God's house. The building is God's. It's God's building. And how does he build it exactly? Well, Paul uses what happened at Corinth as a little, uh, a little case study. So we're back to chapter 3 in, in Corinthians, and we're picking up at verse 10. Uh, and here we see, secondly, that, that Paul wants us to know in terms of uh, God's building. It's his building, and, and the foundation is Christ. So the building is God's. The foundation is Christ. Paul says that he was enlisted by God, God's sort of the patron, the, the financial backer, as it were, to be the architect, to be that master builder, uh, the first one in the building process. Uh, Paul's not bragging here. Uh, he's not even drawing attention to his own accomplishments since he starts the sentence by saying uh, that apart from God's grace, he couldn't have done the work, right? Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me. Uh, this is true for all of us in uh, our work in the church. If God doesn't gift us with the desire and then the ability, we can be of no use to the church. Uh, and Paul is going to say in just another verse that it's God's grace, God's gift of Jesus Christ that is the foundation of the church. So it makes sense since it's grace that has founded the church 
that it would take grace to build the church. So Paul has been gifted. He's been graced by God. And, and, and the same is true for every one of us. And we'll get into this once we get to uh, chapter 12 in this epistle where we learn about spiritual gifts, grace gifts that God gives us. So Paul is not drawing attention to himself when he says he's the master builder. He's saying, no, this is something that God has given me to do. Without him, I could not do it. Um, God gifts Paul with those necessary skills and the necessary unction to begin a church in Corinth. That's what it means by being the architect. He's the church planter. Uh, and Apollos is the on-site builder. Uh, Paul is saying nothing new compared to what he said in previous verses that he planted and Apollos watered. Now he's saying, I laid a foundation and Apollos is built upon it. Same idea. Now, what material did Paul use in this foundation? What was the foundation that he laid? Look at verse 11. No one can lay a foundation, including myself, Paul's saying, other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is, as we love to sing, the church's one foundation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. There, there is no other foundation. There's no other op option. Without Jesus, there's no church. He's not a, an optional foundation. It's not as though the Christian church has several templates upon which we can choose and, and build upon. He's the one foundation, the only foundation. And no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. People try all the time, of course. They build their ministries on their personalities, off their platforms, but it will all crumble if it's not Christ. It will all crumble away if it's not Christ. Now, practically speaking, what does it mean that Paul laid a foundation that is Christ? Okay, like, if that's the material, I, I, I placed Christ there, what are the tools that he used? If we try to stay within this metaphor, this image, if the material was Christ, what tools did he use to work with that material? What did Paul do to establish a church in Corinth? It's simple. He preached. To lay a foundation of Christ means to proclaim the gospel. It means to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what he did at Corinth. He told them about Jesus. Uh, flip back a page or two to chapter 1. Uh, he told us as much earlier on in, in this epistle. He says that... Uh, sorry, as I find my place here. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What's he saying? And as we take, take that and we, we then um, shade in what we've learned here in chapter 3, that there's no foundation apart from Jesus Christ, and that foundation is laid through the proclamation of Christ. What are we learning? We're learning that children ministries, children's ministries don't build a church. Small group ministries don't build a church. Good music doesn't make a church. A, a building, a literal building, does not make a church. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the news that sins are forgiven through faith and what he has accomplished on the cross, that and that alone is what makes a church. 
So when Paul says, I've laid a foundation, what he's saying is, I talked about Jesus. That's it, really. I, I didn't do anything besides preach the gospel. Our church is built on that same foundation as the church in Corinth. Our church is built on that foundation of the gospel. So is our denomination. So are a number of our neighboring churches. Now, what, what do we all have in common? Right? We don't have Paul, but we have Paul's teaching, don't we? We have the apostolic faith. When we teach and we preach the Bible, we're teaching and preaching the same truths, the same lessons that, that the apostles uh, taught and, and preached. Every time we recite the apostles' creed, we remind ourselves the truth of what Paul is saying here, that Jesus Christ is the only foundation for, for Christian faith and life and even, indeed, for Christian community known as the church. The foundation is Christ. And we build on that foundation primarily by preaching Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we want to move into now is the work that we have to do uh, in this uh, building project. Verse 12 and following, uh, Paul moves on to how the church is, is furthered on or built up. And what we see now is that the work is ours. Um, so the, the church is God's. And the building is God's. The foundation is Christ, but the work is ours. It belongs to us in a, in a special way. Paul's already said as much in verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. We have a part to play in all of this, too. And, and although it's true that we're privileged to work along with God, that's probably not what fellow workers means in that verse it's not that the, the fellow isn't describing us and God. I think Paul there is talking about him and, him and Apollos. We are two fellow workers who belong to God. The two of us are fellow workers that belong to God. Um, they're co-workers in the service of God. But they have something to do, and so do we, right? They're, they're not the only workers employed by the Lord. Paul now speaks in verse 12 of anyone. Now, if Anyone builds on the foundation of Christ. So what does that mean? In the context, Paul is certainly speaking about preaching and instruction. So does that mean that the rest of you just get to check out at this point, if you haven't already? You know, say, oh, okay, it's just, it's just the pastor's job now. It's just the preacher's job to build. No, remember what Ephesians 4 says. Let's turn there. Ephesians 4 is really instructive at this point. Where it helps us understand how ministry works. Pastors and teachers, we're told, are, are given for a particular purpose. Look at verse, four, um, uh, verse 11 of chapter 4. And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. There's that idea again of the church as a building. So it applies to all of us, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone builds, and then we're told in Ephesians 4 that pastors are given to the church so that we all would build up the church. So, so this does apply to, to all of us. So what kind of work are we doing? Uh, looking back at our text, Paul doesn't get into specifics. We might be frustrated that we just want to be told, well, just tell me what I need to do, right? And the Bible doesn't always do that. He speaks in generalities. He actually gives a picture, uh, principles through a picture. 
He writes, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And so the question is, what does that mean to build with gold and, or, or hay or straw? What, what, what is this about? And you read some of the commentaries and they can get really creative um, by saying, well, by gold it means this, and by straw it means that, and, but hay means this, it's different from straw, and I'm not sure it's meant to be that complicated. I think he's just actually trying to make uh, a distinction between two types of work we can do, work that lasts and work that doesn't, right? So he says that our work is going to be tested by fire, so there's six items left, listed, right? Gold, silver, precious stones, and then wood, hay, straw. You throw those six into a fire, three come out, three don't. That's, that's the idea. If you're working with the right material, if it's tested by fire, it won't be consumed. But things like stubble, things like st- a straw and hay, that will get consumed. And fire, right, in the Bible, that's, that's the language of judgment, is it not? So he's talking about when, when God comes uh, on that last day to judge what we've done, whether in, you know, in the body, whether good or evil, he's saying, will the work you did uh, stand up to the scrutiny of God's judgment or not? Will it be met with God's benediction, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will it be consumed in his judgment? Notice, though, uh, that the judgment uh, is not on, uh, it's not judgment in terms of salvation or damnation. God does not choose our eternal destiny based on how well we serve the church. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord that that is not the case. He does not choose our eternal destiny based on how well we serve in his church. Because he says in verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Right? So it's the work that's gone, not the workman. That is good news. Um, but is it an excuse? It's good news, but is it, is it an excuse? Uh, the Bible does not know a Christian mindset that, that kind of thinks through things like this. Here's the mindset. As long as I get to heaven, nothing else really matters. You, you will not find that in the Bible anywhere. In college... I often had to tell myself, C's get degrees. There's no equivalent in, in Christian thinking. As long as I, you know, kind of can, if I can just skate through by the skin of my teeth, then, it, then it's all okay. No, what, what does Paul say? He says, be careful, be, 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 be careful in what you build. Take care. Um, he wants us to be cautious. He wants us to build appropriately. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Paul says that those who work with shoddy materials will get into heaven indeed, but just barely. You still have to go through this fire. So Paul's going to write elsewhere, do your best to present yourself a workman who has no reason to be ashamed, one who's approved, one who rightly handles the word of truth. And so these verses in 1 Corinthians 3, they urge us to take with full seriousness both the certainty of eternal life, but also the scrutiny 
which the Lord will bring to our daily service as Christians. We should care the kind of service we render to God. So, what kind of service is it? What, what's the gold, silver, and precious stone materials that we should be using? How do we translate that into um, what we do in the church? I don't know if I want to get too specific here. Paul doesn't get too specific, but is it, um, is it helpful to say it means give the best that you have to the Lord? In any area, right? Um, give the best of your time. Give, give generously of your money. Um, in all things, pursue excellence. Now think about the way that perhaps some of you uh, engage in your, your, your regular job, your Monday through Friday labors, right? You work really hard and you have a good reputation. Do you put that kind of energy into your service in the church or do you phone things in, as it were? As though somehow what happens here isn't as important as the thing you do which gives you a paycheck. Well, the thing you do that gives you a paycheck doesn't get you into glory. It, has, it, has, it doesn't actually have any, and I'm not saying coming to church gets you into glory. You understand, I'm not saying that. But there's actually no connection between that and, and the hereafter. What we do here is preparing us for glory. It's preparing us for eternity. So don't we want to be prepared? Don't we want to do it well? But a lot of times I think we, we're bringing wood, straw, and hay. And we think it's just not that big of a deal. Seas get degrees. The one who's encountered Christ, the, 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 the sinner who's encountered the Lord Jesus and, and, and has, has come to terms with what it took for him, Christ, to, to effectuate salvation, leaving heaven, leaving this, this eternal, glorious, blissful relationship with the Father, being separated from the Father at the, at the cross, right, and, and, and receiving the curse of all curses, right? The curse of every sin that had ever been committed was laid on Christ at the cross. When the sinner encounters that Savior and recognizes that he did it for me, well, what's, what's the response? Paul says it in Galatians 2. Right? The life I now live in, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. I want to give it all. Seas get degrees. No, it's nothing about that. I want to give my, my utmost. What's the Oswald Chambers book? My utmost for his highest. That's what he deserves. That's what he deserves. So our standards for what we do in the church should be continually raised, and yet they're often far too low. We should want to be theologically precise. We want to have a robust study of God's word. We should want to cultivate relationships here and, and all the rest. God demands that his building, the church, is kept in good care, and so we build upon it with the word, with the truth, with the richest theological understanding that we can develop, with all the energy and love that we can offer. That's the gold, that's the silver, that's the precious stones. So the question is, how much do you care about the church? Do you care about her enough to offer these things, to give these things? I think it would be safe to say for all of us that we need to care more. We need to care more. And we should share the love that uh, Jesus has for the church. Have you ever considered the fact that Jesus loves the church more than anything else in the entire world, second only to the Father and the Spirit. 
Think about that. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus' greatest love is you and me. Second only to the Trinity. He loves the church more than anything else on earth. That much we can say. When it comes to what he loves, he loves the church more than anything else on earth. How do you love the church? How much do you love the church? Where would you rank the church in your list of loves? We should share the love that he has. And so a final lesson that we learn here from this text is that the church is essential. It's essential for us. It's essential to us. That's the fourth thing. The building is God's. The foundation is Christ. The work is ours to do. And the church is essential. Verses 16 through 17. Do you now know that, or do you not know, excuse me, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. God, uh, the church is essential because it's how we commune with God. That's that temple language. God indwells his church uh, just as he in, uh, dwelled in the temple of old. He filled it with the, the glory of his spirit. If we kept reading on in First Kings, we would have read about that. Um, about how the, the fire comes down from heaven and says the glory of the Lord uh, filled the temple. This is what God does with the church. He fills the church with his spirit so that we can commune with him, so that we can be with him, so that we can get to uh, uh, fellowship with him. It's, yes, it's true that we all have God's spirit individually, but Paul is talking about what happens when we as individual Christians come together as a community, as a corporate body. In verses 16 and 17, the you there is plural. Do you not know that you, you all, y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? It's plural. For God's temple is holy and you all are that temple. The church receives the indwelling of God's spirit. We come to church to meet with God. And apart from that kind of communion with, with our maker, we would not survive. The psalmist says that over and over again, right? I long to be in your courts. I'm like, like someone in a dry and weary land. I, I, I need water. Lord, it's how I feel about you. I want to come into your presence and be refreshed. I'm, I'm going to die without it. Is that how you feel about church? Is it that essential to you? You can't live without it. Our time in God's temple, the church, brings us back, as it were, to that sweet friendship that God enjoyed with Adam in the garden temple. Our relationship, friends, with God lives or dies based on our relationship with the church. If you want to grow in your Christian faith, then you come to church. If you want to flounder or falter or fail in your Christian faith, then stay home. Our relationship with God uh, grows as our relationship with the church grows. So we come. We come because of him, because he's here. To stay away from church is to stay away from the God who lives there. Uh, perhaps this is the most important aspect of the church's building code, right? Christ is the foundation. That's that's. That's key. There, you can't even start to build unless you have that foundation. But what keeps the church alive? What keeps the church from collapsing like that condo in Florida? It's that God lives in the church. It's that his spirit's there. It's that the power of the almighty God is in this place. Wow. And we get to come. Isn't it an amazing thing to be a Christian?
Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the church, for your building, the, this spiritual house, this temple that we are a part of. We're even used as living stones in, in the structure. Thank you that you've invited us into the work of, of building up the church. And we ask that we would do that with excellence, for you are worthy of nothing less. Thank you that when we come to church, we come not to do rote religious exercises, but to deepen our relationship with you because you are here and we are meeting you. That fact alone, Lord, should be enough to inspire us to to make the church uh, the great priority in our lives. Help us to do just that. And would it be for the sake of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, in whose name we pray, amen.